study of the book of 1 Peter. If you want a title, if you're a note taker, I've called this message A Beautiful Encouragement. And go ahead in your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. And in God's Word in the book of Hebrews, we read, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know, so often when we come to reading God's Word, we, we think that we're just studying God's Word, we're spending time in God's Word, but in reality, it is always reading you. It is living and active. God's voice can be heard. This is why this moment in a Sunday gathering is such a holy moment, because it's the moment as we read God's Word, which is the only moment where we are directly hearing from God Himself. That's why John Calvin said that we owe to Scripture the same reverence we owe to God, because it is His voice. We're being addressed by God Almighty, this is what he wants to say to us, 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you that your word is living and active. Lord, the reason why this is such a special moment is because it is the moment when you address us. Your word comes alive in our hearts. So Lord, I pray that that's what would happen as we gather around your word this morning. Holy Spirit, I invite you, would you speak to us? Would you illuminate things? Would you change our lives? Would we be encouraged and refreshed as we gather once again around your word and around this beautiful encouragement? And would it all be for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. It was early on Thursday morning this week that Brendan walked past my office and said, Wow, you're reading already. And I was. That isn't unusual on a Thursday. I usually, if I'm preaching on a Sunday, will begin on Thursday morning. And yet I was up bright and early this Thursday morning to study this passage because I knew what was coming. Reformer Martin Luther said this about this passage. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty what Peter means. I cannot understand it, and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. It was a sucks-to-be-me moment when I gathered around God's Word, and you think the great Martin Luther has no clue what Peter is trying to say. I was concerned for myself as a man of average intelligence. I was concerned for you, knowing you would have to listen to me in a few days' time. 
I was also concerned why, how in lack of discernment I hadn't asked Brendan to do this message. Why was I assigned to this? And then in horror I realized I assigned myself to this passage. So I started to gather around God's word nice and early on Thursday morning and I continued to gather around me people much brighter than I, other commentators and theologians, and I was, well, I was concerned by their language as well. One commentator, talking in particular about verses 19 to 21, said this text is notoriously obscure and difficult to interpret. Let's try again, another commentator. This section of scripture contains some of the most difficult exegetical problems in the New Testament. Okay, last chance. We now come to a section of scripture that is widely recognized as perhaps the most difficult to understand in all of the New Testament. (laughs) So yes, I was up early on Thursday morning reading and gathering people around myself to work out what is going on in this text, in particular in the tricky parts of this text, verses 19 and 20 and 21. I knew it would be difficult, so I wanted to give myself to it. But I was also up early wanting to give myself to it, because what I've discovered in my life and my story as a preacher is that when you gather around Scripture, it is more often than not that in the deepest caves you find the greatest treasures. It's more often when you go to obscure texts, texts that aren't immediately obvious, that you find things that you are just so grateful to God for because you never saw them before. And so this morning we're going to be getting out our pickaxes, we're going to be walking into this cave together, and I want to encourage you, it does have some beautiful things to say to us. I was not disappointed when the Lord started to reveal to me through the gift of illumination, but also the gift of other commentators starting to go deeper into this text to discover that there is great treasure here. Because what we see here in particular is this. It is a beautiful encouragement for the sojourner from the victory and vindication of Jesus Christ himself. See, Peter knows it's not always easy for us as Christians to follow hard after Jesus. He knows it's not always easy, that sometimes we will even suffer for doing good. We will suffer for doing the right thing. And so right here, he slows us down and wants to give us a beautiful encouragement from the victory and vindication of Jesus Christ himself. So three points. Number one, what does this all mean? I'm going to try and give us an overview of what's happening here. Number two, how is this all possible? As we go deeper in particular to verse 18. And then point three, who are these spirits? Verses 19 through 20. But I really come to this text with one hope. And it's the hope that for all of us this morning, we would find the great treasure in this text. We'd see the gold. And that we would be encouraged and refreshed as a result, which is exactly why it is here. A beautiful encouragement from the victory and vindication of Jesus Christ himself. So number one, what does this all mean? Well, as we approach this text, there are two things that I want us to have in mind as we enter into this story together. Firstly, I want us to have in mind that if Luther was cautious about his interpretation of the difficult parts of this text, then we would be wise, I believe, to follow his example. You know, the difficult parts of this text that we're going to be looking at in point three this morning, we need to limit our reach on. If great minds are saying, I'm not exactly sure, we don't want to be the one standing here going, well, I am. You know, I wouldn't recommend that. 
We need to hold things lightly. There are different interpretations on these things, and we need to understand that and just hold them and, and limit our reach on getting our hands around them. But what we also need to understand as we enter into this text together is that whilst there are difficult parts of this text, there is much here that is both wonderfully clear and compelling. Most of what is here is very clear and compelling. And the overarching reality of what all this means is clear and compelling. The intended redemptive effect is clear and compelling as to what Peter is trying to get done here. In a Mortimer Adler, in his book, How to Read a Book, he gives tips to how do you approach difficult books? How do you work out what a book means in a generic way? And it's very useful for us because it helps us understand how do we find then in the specifics of the Bible and the text? How do we read it? This is the advice he gives. He says, think of yourself as a detective looking for clues to a book's general theme or idea, alert for anything that will make it clearer. You will be surprised to find out how much time you will save, pleased to see how much more you will grasp, and relieved to discover how much easier it can all be than you suppose. For every book has a skeleton hidden in its covers. Your job as an analytical reader is to find it. A book comes to you with flesh on its bare bones and clothes over its flesh. It is all dressed up. So you must read the book with x-ray eyes. For it is an essential part of your apprehension of any book to grasp its structure. And so it is. When we read the Bible, it comes with flesh on, it comes clothes on. And the way we do it is we have to get behind the scenes with our x-rays on to work out what exactly is the flow here, what exactly is happening. And when you do that, what you discover in this text before us is there a wonderful movement and progression that starts in verse 18 and goes all the way through to the end of the text. Starting in verse 18, then we begin with the death of Christ. That death is then followed by his resurrection, and then it culminates in verse 22 with his culmination of ascension. So there's this flow all the way through this text that starts with his death, then goes to his resurrection, and then goes to his ascension. Why? Because Peter wants to picard before our eyes as weary sojourners of the wonderful and glorious triumph of Jesus Christ himself. See, the whole point is this. Peter wants us to understand that Christ's reality and the last word in his life was not suffering and death. The last word on his life was victory and vindication. And he wants to show us that with death and resurrection and ascension because he wants us to understand that the life for you as a believer, even when you suffer, suffering and death does not have the last word in your life. The last word of your life is resurrection and ascension and victory and vindication as you take your seat with Christ himself. That's the big picture that's going on in this text. That is the flow. And my friends, when you see that, when you see that treasure, you start to see some incredible goal. So imagine for a moment being one of the original hearers of this text. Imagine how encouraging and strengthening this reality would have been for them. They are doing it tough. They are being maligned and persecuted and slandered by those around them. Once upon a time, these Christians living in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, 
They used to live in sensuality and passions of the flesh and drunkenness. They used to live just like everybody else. But then they gave their life to Christ. This small band of brothers and sisters started to follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And their lives completely changed around to the point where people are like, you are weird. You think you're up yourself? You never do the things with us anymore? You used to be our friend, but now you don't spend time with us in the same way. And as a result, they are persecuted, they are slandered, they are being maligned, just like Noah in his day. There was a small group of people that everybody else looked on and thought, you are crazy. That's their experience. And so how encouraging for them as they seek to live for Christ, even though they're being slandered and persecuted and maligned, how encouraging for them to know that that slander and that maligning won't have the last word on their lives. No, one day they will be vindicated and rise in victory with Christ himself. This isn't the end of their story. It's just the beginning. Even when they die, it isn't a full stop. It's just a comma before they enjoy the fruits of the reality that heaven is their home, that Peter's already told us in chapter 1, we've all been born again too. How encouraging that must have been to them. Just this week, I had an email from my friend Faris that I was talking to you about um, on retreat. He's our leader of our work in Pakistan, asking me to pray for his brothers and sisters in eastern Pakistan because many of them this week had their, their homes ransacked and burnt and set alight. Would you pray for my brothers and sisters? You know, people like that are so blessed when they hear words like this because it is a reminder that, yes, this isn't my home. My home is up in flames. My life would appear a disaster. I'm being persecuted and slandered by those around me. Thank you, Jesus, that one day I will be vindicated and rise in victory just like you did. That's what's going on here. That's the point of the text. He's seeking to encourage us and come alongside us through the vindication and victory of Jesus Christ himself. And the truth is, we don't have to live in Pakistan to be encouraged by this text. It's for all of us. It has words to say for all of us. I believe the Lord wants you to be encouraged and strengthened by this reality this morning. See, maybe you're here today and you're a student or you're a young adult and you are copying it at the hands of your unbelieving friends. Maybe you are the joke of the class or the ridicule on the sports team because of what you stand for. You think it's not good and wrong to have sex before marriage. Your friends think you're ridiculous for this. Maybe there's different things that you stand for as you seek to follow God's word. That To other people, they just think, you are a freak. I'm going to malign you. I'm going to slander you. I'm going to persecute you because what you stand for is crazy. And you feel that. And you're aware of that. Well, my friends, that suffering and that slander isn't the end of your story. One day you'll stand before Jesus and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And put a crown on your head because you will be vindicated and rise in victory with him. Maybe you're here today and your family is the one that is maligning you or persecuting you. Maybe they think your newfound faith, isn't that great? You used to do things with them on a Sunday morning. Now you don't. You used to go out drinking with them and get drunk with them. Now you don't. There's been different events in the family that you haven't been able to get involved in because integrity, you're realizing, I'm following Christ and this is different to where this is going. And they malign you. You're the black sheep on the family. Well, you're not the black sheep on God's family. 
because your suffering isn't the end of your story. One day he will vindicate you and rise you victorious and tell you, well done. Maybe for others of you, it's your work situation. And for you, living for Christ in your work situation is equal to swearing to your own hurt. You will never be able to get truly promoted and go up the ladder given your convictions. It's just not going to work. You'll never be able to sell enough or do enough or be enough because of what you stand for in Christ. You just can't allow yourself to get into that situation. And so you don't. But because of that, your boss is never going to move you forward. Because you don't fit with the culture, which is actually an anti-biblical culture. And because you're following Christ, you're not willing to go there. Your unbelieving friends may look at you and think, you are an idiot. But Christ looks at you and says, well done. Well done for following my word. I will vindicate you. And I will rise you victorious. My friends, how encouraging it is to know that suffering and death in our lives do not have the last word. Suffering and death did not have the last word in Jesus' life, and neither will it for you. You've been born again to a living hope. Heaven is your home. These are the realities of what it means to live as sojourners and aliens as we head towards that home. You see here a clear progression then. Starting with the death of Christ, proceeding with his resurrection and culminating in his ascension. And it's a wonderful encouragement to us that we too will one day rise with him and be victorious. Well, how is that possible? How is it possible to actually rise with Christ? How is it possible to know for certain that you and I, for he- that heaven will be our home? How can we know this for absolute certainty in our lives that we have been forgiven of our sin and that we will no doubt rise victorious with him and be vindicated? How do we know? Well, that's my second point. How is this all possible? And my friends, this part of the story, as we continue to mine for beautiful treasures in deep caves, is indeed another great treasure. Look with me at the opening words of verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. What an astounding piece of scripture. Christ would indeed suffer once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. Why? Well, so that he might bring us to God. Brothers and sisters, once again, we find ourselves on holy ground as we get to this part in the text. Because what Peter is doing here is drawing our attention to a hill called Calvary and in particular to the wondrous cross upon which the Prince of Glory died. Now I was struck this week as I prepared this message of who it is that is pointing us so clearly to the cross of Christ right here, namely Peter. Once upon a time, Peter protested to this reality. Look with me at Mark chapter 8, verse 31 to 33. Peter himself, having declared, You are the Christ. This is what Jesus says. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. 
And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You know, Peter was the one that was saying to Jesus, No, this is wrong. You can't do that. What do you mean die? There's no way. Just, Just stop it. Just stop talking like that. But now the same one, this Peter, now living on the other side of this resurrection ascension is saying, this is exactly the way it was meant to be. This one who protested to it now proclaims it because he wants us to know this is the only way to know that heaven is your home. This is the only way to be forgiven of your sin, namely understanding and putting your faith in his death and resurrection and ascension in your place. And so he tells us right up front, listen, Christ suffered once for sins. He died in the flesh. When he said, it is finished on the cross, what he meant by that is your sin has been paid for in full. Boom. It is finished. Everything that you have done wrong in your life, he has drank the cup of God's wrath in your place to its fullness. It is finished finished his work is done there's nothing left to pay there's no need for repeat sacrifices it is finished the righteous he says for the unrighteous the righteous jesus the only person that has ever lived in perfection the true righteous one he gave his life away for who the unrighteous those that didn't deserve it the ones that hadn't made it by themselves why did he do it Well, here's why. To bring us to God. He gave his life away as a ransom for many, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring you as the unrighteous back to God. My friends, this is simply stunning, is it not? It is stunning. It is a peak in the entirety of the book where Peter raises us up, he transports us up and goes, Behold Calvary! This is everything for you. This is what he has done, and he has done it for you. What does this mean? Well, for the Christian, this means the penalty of your sin has been paid for. The sacrifice of, the sacrifice of your substitute was sufficient. And through him, you have now been brought near to God. Once and for all, one sacrifice for all, boom, it is finished. What a wonderful and stunning and glorious reality. What a glorious treasure to find right here in this book and this text, which I think presents as the greatest of K's. And my friends, this reality that Christ has paid it all for you, this reality that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is a truth that I believe Peter wants us to not only know with our heads in some theological way and go, hmm, nice, yeah, good. I believe it's something he wants to know in our minds so that we may protect against legalism and in our hearts so that we may give our lives away in rejoicing. He doesn't just want us to know it. He wants us to feel it. We're not just brains on sticks. We're living people that have feelings and he wants to engage our hearts because he wants us to be amazed. He wants us to be like the man that found the treasure in the field and then sold everything because all I want is that. I'm amazed by this. 
this can have my life. And what was that treasure? It was the glories of Calvary. It was a relationship with Jesus that is experienced, not just known. It's felt. It brings joy. I believe Peter wants us to not only know this in our heads, he wants us to feel it in our hearts. And I think we have a tendency and temptation, to be quite frank, against both. (laughs) See, for all of us, I think, as Christians, particularly in Western Christianity, where we get opposed for our faith very little, I think for all of us, there is a tendency and a temptation to forget that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I think we can forget about it. I think we can forget about it weekly. I think we forget about it daily. I think every day there is a tendency and temptation to forget that my only standing before God is possible because of what He has done. We forget that and we start to think my standing before God and acceptance before God is also based on what I do, which is what legalism is and what the Pharisees lived by. I think there is a daily tendency and temptation to all of us to go there in our hearts. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way. He says, Our greatest temptation and mistake is to try and smuggle character into God's work of grace. I think he's right. Our daily temptation and mistake is to try and smuggle character into God's work of grace. We try and smuggle character in, and I think we all do that at different times. I mean, go on a story with me here. In in 1 Peter 2, verse 11 and verse 12, we are urged as sojourners to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war. So we start to get into this whole section that, okay, this is what I've got to do, right? This is how I need to respond to God. I need to put to death my sin. Why? So that I can be a compelling witness. So that in my life, I can be a compelling witness for Christ. He then goes on to explain what that looks like in civic life, what that looks like in professional life, what that looks like in married life. As Austin taught us a few weeks ago from chapter 3, verse 8, we then discover what it looks like in all of life. We're learning lots of things about what we need to do, and we take that seriously, do we not? We want to live for Jesus Christ. We want to exhibit in our lives a true love for Jesus, a true representation of Jesus. We want to live for Jesus and exhibit in our lives, I love him, I believe in him, I'm all in. That's great. That's a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And it is a wonderful thing to exhibit in your life a love for Jesus. The problem comes when we start to think all these applications are earning it. And there is a big difference between exhibiting it and earning it. But it is a fine line between the two. The legalist doesn't just think they're exhibiting these things. They think I must do these things because this is how I earn his acceptance. This is how I earn his love. This is how I earn his affections. So I'm so terrible. I'm rubbish at mission. My marriage isn't as good as it could be. I'm not doing a great job in my workplace. He must hate me. He probably doesn't even accept me. Yes, no, no. He does accept you and he does love you because those things don't earn your salvation. They experience it. They exhibit it. The two are very different. We have a daily temptation and tendency to forget that your standing before God is all based on verse 3. For Christ, sorry, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Full stop. I don't see your behavior written in there. It's all him. 
It is his work for you. He died in your place, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? So that you can be brought near to God. He's done it all for you. You don't earn your salvation. You don't do anything that brings you back to God. No, having been brought back to God through the finished work of Jesus Christ, we now, through devotion and through enthusiasm, live it out. We exhibit it. But we never earn it. Make sense? I believe we have a daily temptation and tendency to get those two things mixed up. Start to think we're earning it. And then you have the good day, bad day scenario. Sometimes you feel like God must really accept you. Other days he doesn't. Brothers and sisters, God accepts you if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. He accepts you to the full because he took the wonderful gift of the Savior's sacrifice and he covered your life with its blood and its righteousness. That's how you can draw near. Not because of you, but because of Jesus. We have a daily temptation and tendency in our lives, I think, to forget. Likewise, I think we have a daily tendency and temptation in our hearts to grow cold. To go cold to the realities of what Christ has done for us. And what it really meant to him, the Holy One, to make this salvation possible. See, maybe for some of you, maybe you feel nothing in worship or in singing. Because you've forgotten really what he's done for you. Maybe it's never really amazed you. You know it theologically but it's never filtered down to actually your heart in a way that it's ever affected you. Maybe for some of you, you've never been truly amazed by grace. So you hear other people talking about how amazing it is to be a Christian and you think that is so different to what I feel. See, I think we have a daily temptation to grow cold to the realities of what Christ has done for us to make this salvation possible. John Stott wonderfully gives us this counsel with that regard. He says, The cross is a blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled, but we have to get near enough for its sparks to fall on us. Isn't that wonderful? When we stop and stare and gather around the wondrous cross upon which the Prince of Glory died, we will be affected. But we have to get close enough to it for its sparks to fall upon us. I thank God that Peter, right here at verse 18, brings us right near to those sparks. He brings you face to face. with See, there are certain verses in the Bible that I think we would do well to insert our names into. A famous one is Romans 4, verse 8, that says, Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not count his sin." And I think we often are taught, even when we're young, if you've been around church all your life, to insert your name where it says one, i.e., blessed is you against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Blessed is Andrew against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Blessed is Christina against whom the Lord will not count her sin. They're just wonderful moments in Scripture, aren't they, where we can personalize it and we realize this is true for me. This isn't just true for everybody. This is true for me. Well, my friends, if we are wise, we will insert our name in verse 18 as well. 
Because when we do, those sparks from the cross fall with deeper purpose. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for... That's where you insert your name. The righteous for Beth. That he might bring her to God. The righteous... For Esther, gave his life for her so that he might bring her to God. The righteous for Freud so that he may give his life away and bring him to God. Do you see? We're designed to feel it. Not just theologically go, oh, nice. Insert your name. Because where it says the unrighteous, he's talking about you personally. See, my friends, if we, on the way home today, we walk along the street, as we do, and we have our mobile phones out, as many of us do, and we get to the end of this path and we're about to walk on the road and a butterfly catches our attention to the point where momentarily we pick up our heads from our phone and we see the butterfly, at which point a bus comes hurtling past and you realize, my gosh, I would have stood there. You'd be talking about that butterfly for the rest of the day. You know what? There's this butterfly and I was reading my phone and I would have stopped in front of the, the, the bus, but you know, it caught my attention. and It was amazing. But imagine the same scenario where you're walking along the street and you're reading your phone and you're about to step out and you do indeed step out, at which point you get an almighty shove in the back and you turn around and you see a young man has just pushed you in the back and oh my gosh, he has just been completely smashed by a bus. You'd be talking about him for the rest of your life. You'd find out his name. You'd find out his family. You'd want to get, get in touch with all of them because, you, you know, if he hadn't done that, you wouldn't have even had another minute to breathe. It would be personal for you. Well, my friends, what Jesus Christ has done for you is far more than that illustration provides. Because Jesus Christ came when that juggernaut of God's wrath was heading towards you and he pushed you out of the way and then when you turned around, he's taking the fall for you. If we would talk about that young man in the analogy for the rest of our lives, then I submit to you how much more should we be amazed in Jesus for the rest of our lives, given what he's done. It's personal. It's personal for each and every one of us. My friends, every day we have a tendency to forget and grow cold to the realities of what Christ has done. But when we get close to the cross and we make it personal, that he died, the righteous, for me, Dave Taylor, that he might bring me to God. What a wonderful daily reminder. Sometimes the greatest treasures are found in the deepest caves, are they not? 
You look at texts like this and you think, I don't know quite where we're going to go with this. But you find as you begin to mine, there is gold in these verses. There are treasures because Peter right here raises our eyes to the joys of the wondrous cross upon which the Prince of Glory died, reminding us he did it all for you. Jesus paid it all for you. So, who are these spirits? Verse 19. That's my third point. Who are these spirits? Look with me, verse 19. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Well, who are those guys? Who are these spirits? And what did Jesus actually proclaim to them? And when did he do it exactly? They're all the important questions that commentators are asking and that there's been discussion about for hundreds and hundreds of years. There is much debate about the identity of these spirits. The Greek term pneuma, from which we obviously translate the word spirit, in either singular or plural can mean either human spirits or angels, depending upon the context. And so there are many different interpretations. One commentator actually said there are 180 different interpretations. I'm not sure there really are. But in her mind, that commentator believes there are loads of different interpretations depending on how you translate this word, the spirits. Who are these people? What are these people? Well, really, it comes down, I think, to three big options. There are many options, but there are three in particular that get the most mileage, and they are as follows. The first idea is that these spirits are people that were in hell at the time of the cross. So when Jesus died and he gave his life away, Immediately upon that moment, he then descended to hell to preach to people who had already died to give them a second chance, to give it possible as they entered into Hades to give them another go. You didn't listen to me before through the prophets, but let's try again now. Some people believe that. Some people hold to that. I would probably disagree with that. It contradicts Scripture in many places. In Hebrews 9 verse 27, for example, that for man dies once and after that faces judgment. There's no indication of a second chance for anybody in that text. There's also problematic for verses like Luke 23 verse 43 that says, Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. The flow of the text doesn't go too well when into your hands I commit the Spirit, but just give me a sec, I'm going to go to something else. It's just quite, it does, it's problematic. But he does contradict other verses, and because of that, I don't think that is a really very acceptable idea nor thought. The second idea that many would believe is that these spirits are fallen angels who were in hell to await final judgment. And so the idea would be that when Jesus died and breathed up his last and declared it is finished, he then went down to hell to proclaim a message of triumph over all the fallen angels that had gone previously, and he paraded them around in that moment as defeated foes. And there's a lot of mileage to this idea. The vast majority of references to spirits in the New Testament refers to spiritual beings rather than people. In addition, the word prison is not anywhere else in Scripture used as a place of punishment after death for human beings. But it is used regularly when talking about Satan and his fallen angels. And so this idea that he went to hell to proclaim triumph before then immediately going to the Father, some people believe that, and I understand that. 
And I can see how they understand that. But there's this third idea, which would be the one that I would hold to, albeit hold lightly. And it's the idea that these spirits refer to the unsaved men and women of Noah's day. He's not talking about present day. He's talking about a time when he was in the spirit, which in effect is out of time. And he preached the good news of the gospel through Noah. See, in 1 Peter 1 verse 11, Peter tells us that the spirit of Christ was speaking through the Old Testament prophets. He's already given us advanced warning in this letter that Jesus himself did preach a gospel of repentance and faith through Old Testament prophets. In 2 Peter 2 verse 5, Peter then calls Noah a herald of righteousness, literally a preacher, a proclaimer, somebody who has proclaimed the gospel, in effect a prophet. And so it would appear that Christ was always the one who is speaking through Noah and proclaiming through Noah a message of repentance and faith. Well, sadly, only eight people listened. Only eight people responded. And these eight people responded in faith to Noah's words. They were saved as they stepped into the ark. They were saved from the judgment waters of the earth while others were wiped out. And now today we're saved in the same way. When we put our faith in the words of Jesus Christ, we are in that moment saved and we reveal to all society that that's the reality by getting baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Which is what he talks about in verse 21. So I would lean there. But very lightly. (laughs) If Martin Luther is saying, I can't figure it out, I'm not going to stand here and go, bingo! You know, I'm not completely convinced it's going to be one of those things but here's what i want to encourage you with it would be good if you want to look into it and spend time with it don't study all 180 options there's better things to do with your life but what i do want to encourage you is don't let the difficult distract you from the compelling don't let the difficult in this text distract you from the clearly compelling and clear because what we do see oh so clearly in this text is that we have here a beautiful encouragement for the sojourner from the victory and vindication of Jesus Christ himself. We may never exactly know where Jesus went or what exactly he did down there. We may never know who he actually preached to or what he said or the exact timing that he did these different things. But what we can know from this great case is that Jesus wins, and so will you. What we can know is that even though suffering does take place in this earth, even for doing the right thing, that is not the end of your story. It's not the last word. In the same way Jesus wins, so will you. You will one day be vindicated and rise victorious in Christ. This is not the end of your story. It's just part of your story. And what we do know is that heaven will be your home if you are a Christian because Jesus paid it all for you. He died in your place as your substitute, which is why we can say with the greats, nothing in our hands do we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. Sometimes in the greatest caves, we find the greatest treasures. My friends, hold on to these treasures. May they enthuse your life and may all glory go to him as a result. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, what a beautiful reminder it has been this morning.
that suffering is a mere blip in our lives. It is not the last word of our lives. Lord, I thank you that one day as Christians we will rise victorious in you and we will be vindicated. For all those amongst us that are presently suffering for doing the right thing, that are suffering for doing good, that are suffering for honoring their Lord and Master rather than the world. Lord, I pray that they would be encouraged and strengthened by this message today. That they're not home yet. And that one day it will all be worth it as they receive the crown from you yourself. Lord, you suffered and you died. But that was not the last word on your life. The last word was victory and vindication. So Lord, thank you for reminding us this morning that that would be the last word on our lives as well. And Lord, what a comfort it is to know that we will make it, not because of us, but because of you. For you are the one that suffered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us back to God. Lord, I pray that that would enthuse us, that would amaze us each and every day of our lives. You are worthy of all our praise. In Jesus' name.